0: Welcome, this is Lisa Peterson with CALPACT, the California Pacific Public Health Training Center located in the Center for Public Health Practice at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. CALPACT is funded by a grant from the federal government to increase the capacity and size of the public health workforce in Northern and Central California, Hawaii, and the Associated Pacific Islands. Our program focuses on leadership development, cultural competency, and the use of new media to provide public health services. Today, in our podcast series about innovations in health promotion and healthcare access, we'll take you on a journey into the cutting-edge work being done by public health, healthcare, and research professionals. And we're very excited to have Adrian Aguilera with us from UC Berkeley's School of Social Welfare. Hello, Adrian. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me.
0: Great. Well, we're very pleased that you're joining us today. And we're really interested in learning about the research you conduct in the area of improving healthcare access and the use of technological innovations. But before we do that, maybe we could take a moment and you could share a little bit about your background and how you came to be in the position you're in now as assistant professor at the School of Social Welfare.
1: Sure. Um, I guess I can go back a bit, and I was, I grew up in Chicago, in a primarily Mexican-American neighborhood that was relatively low SES, and through those experiences, as, as a lot of us in the field often come from, we see things that we want to try to help improve, and what I saw a lot was struggles, particularly with health and mental health issues in those communities that kind of fed the desire to to do something about it so i went from chicago to stanford for my undergraduate work with that idea of working for uh, to improve mental health i thought about going into psychology and what i learned there was the ability to combine one's passion with an intellectual pursuit and the art and science of research and investigation and how that could be used as a tool to improve health for needy communities. From there, I then went on to graduate school at UCLA in clinical psychology, again further kind of specifying research on mental health and studying issues of culture and socioeconomic status where I received very good training with uh, very good mentors. And then after that, I went to UCSF, did a postdoc with uh, Ricardo Muñoz, who is really a pioneer in using technologies for mental health interventions. So his particular focus has been internet interventions. So he really pushed me to um, think about ways to integrate technology along with some of my other interests. So. Being uh, in Silicon Valley, it really does help to have access to a lot of what's going on. So I happen to have some friends that were, you know, had a startup where they were using, doing text messaging uh, search and things like that. And so I started thinking about how to combine some of these technologies with my interest in uh, improving mental health in underserved communities. And that's really where the main line of research started. Um, at this point, so along with other interests in more broadly culture and socioeconomic status, I've developed a bit of a, kind of a research package and trajectory that the School of Social Welfare seemed to like, and they hired me on, uh, and I, I just started in July and I've been enjoying it since then, so looking forward to seeing what, what is yet to come.
0: Excellent. And you also are involved in still conducting research at UCSF?
1: Correct. So I still have some collaborations uh, at UCSF with my uh, mentor, Ricardo Muñoz, and some other faculty members there, with a particular focus um, at San Francisco General Hospital, which is where I'm still conducting clinical research with populations there. Great.
0: Great. And I think that's a good time because I think our listeners would be very interested in some of your more recent work using uh, mobile technologies in improving healthcare access to treatment for things such as depression, I Mm -hmm. believe. If you could share a little bit about that project.
1: Sure. Um, So as I mentioned, the idea came uh, combining a variety of different interests, but one of the the main impetus for applying technology... uh, as part of a uh, therapy for depression was born in part uh, out of a frustration through my own clinical work and having people track their mood, track their behaviors, track their thoughts, things that are central to cognitive behavioral therapy. And these are things that people had a difficult time doing in particular in these low resource, high stress populations. Uh, you know, carrying around a piece of paper and writing down how you feel isn't the first thing on your mind. So the idea was how can we leverage a technology like text messaging, which is simple, relatively cost effective, to probe people to provide the information, um, thereby providing us data on how they're doing, and also helping them become more aware of those things which we know are important, being aware of one's mood, and of the things that lead uh, and are related to one's mood so that's the the idea um, as it was born uh, we then i've since applied it started applying it in a in terms of a pilot study where we're working with group therapy for depression using the cognitive behavioral framework at san francisco general hospital this typically they a 16-week treatments, it's a manualized therapy, so there are certain themes that are covered throughout that. And what I'm trying to do is seeing if text messaging could really enhance what we already know works. So these manualized therapies are shown to work, but in, in real practice, particularly in these communities, we see that their, their effectiveness is probably lessened by a lot of barriers. You know, not completing those assignments or homework, as we call them, not attending appointments and not necessarily practicing the skills that we are trying to teach. Um, So the idea is to have the text messaging be that uh, enhancer, that connection back to the group. Uh, Throughout the process, another thing that we've seen is not only does it seem to be doing that, right, helping people become more aware of their mood practicing skills, but they're also developing a stronger sense of connection to their therapist and the group in general. We've had people say, um, in response to asking them what they thought about the text messages, that it's nice to feel cared for. That when I get a message, I know that somebody cares about me, and if I'm feeling a bit down, it makes me feel better. We haven't tested the efficacy of the adjunct per se, But in initial pilot work and feasibility testing, we have seen that it is acceptable and patients, uh, by and large, seem to like uh, using it as part of their treatment.
0: And maybe you could um, use the word adjunct, and I think that in terms of being an enhancement to Mm -hmm. a primary treatment and a a good resource, maybe you could speak a little bit to how you're using this in in a public sector clinic, you're working with uh, Spanish-speaking community mm-hmm. members around a mental health issue mm-hmm. and why this is particularly effective mm-hmm. and or a really great kind of innovative way to build evidence of a new thing we sh- we could be doing that really has a lot of promise.
1: Right, Right. The idea is, again, to get as much uh, as we can out of what's being done currently and to really extend what's being done. So there's a lot of work that's put into conducting therapy in these groups but that's only two hours out of you know a full week which in the grand scheme of things is not a lot of time but if we can add on a piece you know this text messaging adjunct it really the idea is that it amplifies the power of the intervention you then are you know if you'd like to think about it as a therapist in in their pocket right so that at a different time during the day when they get a message that little light turns on that the ideas that were discussed during the group become a bit more internalized more salient and within where we're testing it is as you mentioned uh, with spanish-speaking patients as well as uh, we've done some work with english-speaking patients as well both at the general hospital these are typically difficult populations to work with in the sense that as i mentioned before they tend to have uh, lower levels of resources and higher levels of stress than the general population providing barriers to adhere to to care to things that we know work so i really see this as a tool that can help lessen those those barriers to some degree by making it something that people don't have to go out and you know think about and think about where their, you know, piece of paper is, where they need to mark their mood, and so on. Um, It's a a bit more of a a natural process, um, Mm -hmm. we hope.
0: And I, I think I wanted to echo something you'd said earlier about the idea of it not only helping to overcome some of the barriers that exist to having access to this kind of practice that works, but also how it enhances what already works. And you had said the showing that using the the phones with the the text messaging enhances a sense of connection. Maybe you could speak a little bit to how things like that are Mm -hmm. particularly important.
1: Right. One of the, actually, one of the variables that uh, is shown to be related to success in any sort of psychotherapeutic treatment is a sense of of, uh, what's termed uh, therapeutic alliance, right? So that's a sense of connection or trust that, patient has with their therapist. As you might imagine, the higher that is, the more trust that exists in that relationship, the more likely that an individual is to adhere or listen to what the therapist has to say or to engage in that, in that treatment. So if indeed people feel more cared for, more connected, then it, uh, in turn, they might also be more likely to, to practice these Healthy skills that we're trying to teach, and in turn, get better. So, we were initially targeting those skills and the education piece, if you will, and reinforcing that. But what we're finding is that this other piece, in terms of a connection between a therapist and a patient, might be at, at least important, potentially equally important. We're still, we need to tease out those relationships, but it's becoming a factor that we, I think, underestimated.
0: And Adrian, maybe just a little bit, I'm really curious and what kind of messages were they getting and what the receptivity to using, you know, a mobile phone and what are some of the things that might've come up
1: with that? So it was tied to, so I guess stepping back a bit as part of the standard treatment, what we ask patients to do after every session is to get a piece of paper and track their mood every day. And again, that process of self-reflection will help, hopefully help help us all, right? Be in tune with our mood and then be in tune with what's leading to that mood. So those are things that we ask people to do as part of this therapy. What we found is that people aren't very good at it. So what we did with the messages is send out one message every day um, at a random time asking simply, what's your mood right now on a scale of one to 10? And then secondly, there would be a question related to the theme of that month. So there are four modules in the, in the treatment. The first module, uh, which is a, a four weeks long, focuses on thoughts, the second on activities, the third on social interactions, and the fourth on uh, healthy living and healthy activities. Um, so that second message was asking about monitoring, uh, for example, how many... Uh, positive thoughts have you noticed today? How many pleasant activities have you done today? How many positive social interactions have you had today? Um, Something like that was followed up at the end of the day so that people can reflect on the day. In general, people have been pretty good about adhering. We found about a 70% response rate to the messages, which after getting a message every day, you know, twice a day every day, it's pretty good in the grand scheme of things. In addition, we've also been sending medication reminders for those that are, that are taking medications. And although we tell people that this is an automated system, it is important to, to note that it is automated because when we think about a public health impact and cost savings, that's where the cost savings come in, is being able to automate a system and reach a large number of people. So even though we tell people that it's automated, they still have this feeling of a message coming from somebody, coming from me, for example, in one of the groups that I'm leading. And as much as we'll tell people that it is automated, they still have this feeling. So it's uh, you still get that benefit of that close connection.
0: Well, and you mentioned the therapist in the pocket. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> feeling or extending that therapeutic alliance beyond just the within that hour in in the office setting.
1: Exactly. It's as if I, you know, it's as if I was still thinking about all of the patients throughout which they do come up in our minds throughout, but they're they become more conscious of that. Uh, and these are simple asking about one's mood is a very simple question, but it does a lot of things, right? It ha- it helps somebody first reflect on what's going on in the moment. It provides us as healthcare providers with important data in terms of how uh, how people are doing. And thirdly, it reminds them that somebody else is there, that they're part of this group, they're part of this thing. So it's simple, yet I think it carries a, a pretty big punch relative to, to its simplicity.
0: And thinking about the feasibility of using a new technology like this, any thoughts on if a listener is thinking about, wow, how could we use this as a model for yes. us to do something What's the kind of back background on mm-hmm. doing that? Do you have to work with a, you know, a private company mm-hmm. or the cost? You spoke about the cost-effectiveness right. of it?
1: There are various models, and those are right. being developed in terms of what's the most effective. Yeah, they range from the very tech-savvy person to be able to develop their own system, right? That would be a totally customized system that one could use. It goes all the way to the other side where you completely purchase, there are a lot of providers, a lot of uh, companies who would provide these types of things. And but they tend to charge relatively high amounts of money for the technology. What I ended up doing is somewhere in between where I worked with a, kind of a startup who was coming up and had a similar technology, and she was able to uh, mold the technology to a bit of what I wanted to do. So there are different models and nothing's caught on per se. I'm now taking the, the software and customizing it a bit further to test it. The plan would be then down the road to have this that has been tested and shown to be effective and then try to open it up more widely so that other people can use it. There are a few different things that a few different technologies that people can use today for uh, mood monitoring for example. There's a website called mood247.com, for example, that does this very thing. You sign up and you get uh, messages every day asking you about your mood at a different uh, time of day, and you can share that information with your healthcare provider. Um, if you want to do things that are a bit more customized, then that's where. Uh, you have to have a little bit of a know-how or work with somebody that has a know-how. Build a Uh,
0: partnership, potentially a public-private kind of partnership. Mm -hmm. Exactly.
1: And I mean, the nice thing about being in the Bay Area in particular is that it's a pretty fertile place in terms of people being into technology. And because it is a new area, people are also eager to develop their products, to get them out there, the ideal scenario, even for a private company, is to have a product that has been researched, right? That has connection with a well-known university, and that's something that can be leveraged as well, um, so that one's not just purchasing a very expensive product. Which, if you have the money, I suppose that's one way to do it. But we're not also fortunate. So,
0: and I see also the the aspect of um, social entrepreneurship, being able to partner and create something that has a potential for some very positive social change and impact.
1: Right. And it's uh, the opportunities are becoming uh, higher and higher. I think, the, for example, here at, at Berkeley uh, in the computer science department, there are people working on health applications using technology at UCSF. There's a group, there's an M Health group. So M Health is the big term, the popular term these days for mobile health. So this refers to any technology that's a mobile technology that can be used for health. Typically it revolves around phones, using something as simple as, as text messaging, although people are moving more and more towards smartphones and all of the different capabilities that they have um, and trying to apply those for, for uh, health applications.
0: And I think that it's a good segue. I read in one of your articles, there's this great paragraph that I wanted to share with our listeners and get you to comment on. And it says, although our focus is depression, these tools can inform the development of other health interventions. We see these low-cost tools as providing higher quality care and thus helping to reduce health disparities among low-income and ethnic minority populations. These initiatives are part of our mission to employ evidence-based, technology-aided, culture-sensitive treatments to reduce health disparities worldwide. That is to think globally, act locally, and share globally. So maybe you could share a little bit about your own thoughts about what that mission means to you.
1: Mm -hmm. I think what's important about that is keeping in mind that as we develop these technologies uh, for health and, and any type of technology, Uh, for that matter, is to keep in mind that these technologies have a positive potential, but they also have the potential of increasing disparities if only those uh, with more means have access to technologies. What my focus is, uh, in terms of my work, is to really apply these technologies and test these technologies among the most needy populations, that is, primarily low-income populations, ethnic minority populations, non-English speakers, people that don't necessarily have access to resources, to all the technologies that are available. And I think that's really the crux of that. And if we can then harness these tools, something as simple as text messaging, which you don't need a smartphone to use, for example, right? People of, from low-income backgrounds They tend to have uh, mobile phones at relatively high rates. There are technologies that can be used to help reduce suffering, improve health in needy populations. And that's really the idea is to keep shining the light there and not allowing us to forget the broader mission of improving health.
0: I'm very interested if you could speak a little bit to the research you've been conducting a little bit about this role of social factors mm-hmm. on health outcomes and how important that is to to understand and, mm-hmm. and take into
1: consideration. Right. The understanding of social factors is very much, a, it informs my view of health more broadly. So we often are in a one-on-one relationship in terms of, you know, a practitioner, clinician, whatever you want to call it, and patient or client or what have you. But typically these are one-on-one relationships. And it is important to see individuals as individuals. But another thing that we need to consider is what is this individual's context and how does that context influence that person? And so for me, it really is important to understand how one's cultural background, how one's socioeconomic background, influences one's outcomes. So those things are gonna influence your opportunities in the case of socioeconomic status primarily, but also your cultural background is gonna influence even how you, how you engage with technology. One example of that, that's slowly coming up in our work is I mentioned to you that some patients felt very cared for when they received a text message. Well, those tended to be more of the Spanish speaking patients. Whereas the English speaking patients really uh, highlighted the fact that it was a way for them to uh, become introspective and really think about themselves and work on themselves. So these are similar messages that are perceived quite differently. On the one hand, you can get a message and feel a sense of connection, right? so reaching out and connecting with others. On the other hand, you can get the same type of message and go inward and try to work on oneself. These are possibly cultural manifestations of how people see and interact with the world. And those are things that we need to constantly have in mind as we develop these tools. Uh, Whatever tool that we develop, it's not gonna be utilized in the same way uh, by everyone. Mm -hmm.
0: And in thinking about that, not used in the same way, I think it's interesting, this idea of kind of countering a typical definition of culture as more static and fixed, Mm -hmm. as opposed to something fluid and changes within communities as well as between. And any thoughts on how important that is in terms of developing these tools?
1: You're gonna get various responses on that type Mm -hmm. of question, how people see it. But I think by and large, I think it's accepted that culture, particularly this day and age, as information travels so rapidly, Culture is quite a fluid thing. As more people from various backgrounds coexist, various ideas are, are influencing each other. So I think it is it is quite complicated, but it's something that I think we need to constantly be on the lookout for and not take for granted that um, the idea that all people are the same, for example. That being said, we also can't make the assumption that all people of a given ethnic group are the same, right? There are aspects of culture that make people similar, but within that, there are other characteristics that interact to change those similarities. So you have culture on the one hand, but then if you interact that with socioeconomic status, you then start to see a much more complex picture.
0: I, I just wanna say, I really feel like this passion you have for trying something that's innovative and cost-effective, improving quality of care, working in resource-limited settings. Maybe you could share if there's any other things in addition to these mobile technologies, for instance, that might be used to do similar Mm -hmm. kinds of work.
1: First and foremost, there are lots of interventions and studies that work to improve health uh, in a variety of populations. I think one of the frustrations is that a lot of those studies, a lot of those interventions are developed with and for quote-unquote mainstream populations. And then later they need to be adapted for resource-poor settings or, or diverse settings. So I think first and foremost, conducting research with diverse populations is, is very important. And also taking what we know works and applying them in these settings. One of the problems is that the gap between research and practice is quite large, and I think we need to narrow that as a, as a first goal. But from there, I do think it is necessary to think in innovative ways about what we can do to help those in most need. Unfortunately, in this day and age, we can't spend more money necessarily, so what we need to do is find ways to spend more wisely. And I think technology enables us to do that. So I think that that's one of the reasons it is growing, is that we can harness it to provide information and extend care for more people.
0: And maybe kind of thinking before moving on a little bit in a different direction, just hearkening back to the beginning when you said you were able to find a way to marry the art and the science. How did you do that?
1: I see it as a combination of... uh, on the one hand, we have a passion for something. But what I found is that that's not enough. It needs to be backed by, by rigorous thinking, and that's where the science comes in. So the, the science, what it really allows us to do is take that, that passion that we might have and help guide it and direct it. So while I want to make positive change in these communities, I need to learn how to do it best and how to find what works. And that's what science can do for us. One of the problems that we see broadly in terms of um, a lot of these technology applications is that uh, private companies in particular are very eager to get these technologies out to market. But one of the problems with that is that they're not uh, necessarily tested. So we don't know what works. And that's really the role of science to come in and really test whether something is indeed beneficial. Too often we take for granted that something is going to be helpful when it might not be helpful. And on the other hand, it might cause more harm. So that balance is, I think, quite important, is to marry the the passion that one might have with an intellectual rigor to address a problem.
0: And can you share, if you just were to reflect, do you think there's any practical steps you've taken or specific skills you've developed that have or help you to achieve positive results with the project?
1: First and foremost has been persistence. In our world, a lot of what we need is applying for grants and resources to help run these projects. I've been doing that for a few years and with some failures and more recently some success. And I think back, if I would have given up early on, I wouldn't be here, I'm still working on this. So I think persistence, uh, first and foremost, is important. And I think what's really helped me as well is, is seeking good mentorship and consultation from experts. One thing that's important to realize is that we're not, we can't be experts at everything. And recognizing those limitations and recognizing our own strengths helps us look for other complementary strengths to help develop and work on whatever projects we're interested in. And that's been something that's really been helpful for me. Back when I was an undergrad, uh, one of my mentors then gave me the advice to utilize my resources. And that's something that I've carried with me and identifying what those resources are, often they're resources in terms of Other people that are willing to help you, that are willing to work with you. Without that I wouldn't be um, continuing this work.
0: And what other resources would be included in that beyond those that might be in your sphere to help you or Mm -hmm. advise you or mentor you? Mm -hmm. What other kind of resources?
1: In terms of resources from others or just You were
0: saying in undergrad they made this great comment and like if if somebody, beyond just knowing someone, is it maybe at particular courses? Well, I think that
1: what I got out of it, and I suppose uh, it can be construed in different ways, but really maximizing what you have. A lot of times we think that I need such and such to be successful. I need this to, to do that. I, maybe I need money to do this project, right? Uh, but the idea of maximizing what it is that you do have is quite important. So even though I didn't get a grant to do this project initially, I was able to figure out a way to do it on a very low budget. And that spurred some innovation. And when I realized that, OK, I can do this in a more limited manner, as opposed to constantly looking out to and identifying what I didn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and within that, asking mentors What they thought, how could I do this? Those are the types of resources that have really been uh, helpful. And also identifying resources outside that can help one do uh, those projects. Identifying grants, so actual financial resources. I think the, the important thing is recognizing that there are different types of resources. We have our own resources, there are resources in others, there are financial resources, and kind of broadening the way we look at that.
0: Maybe in um, we could think about you know we really and you've spoken to this point that we're increasingly seeing new methods being used to promote health, increase healthcare access, such as the mobile technology applications. Any thoughts on why this is particularly important or salient right now for us to do in order to have impact and make a difference? Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know if anybody would agree with the statement that our healthcare system is perfect as it is. I think everyone recognizes that there are significant problems in our healthcare um, in this country. And I think that we really need a drastic change in the way we operate. And within that, I think technology plays a role. It's not a silver bullet by any means. It's not gonna change everything, but I think it can be a very transformative tool um, nonetheless. So this can be using mobile technology, this can be uh, improving electronic health records. You know, in, a, in a variety of different ways, I think, it can help healthcare become more efficient, which in my view is one of the major problems with, with healthcare is the inefficiencies in the system as a whole.
0: If there was one thing you could do to improve the public's health and you had all the resources to make it happen, what would you do?
1: Well, I have to first, I, this is a, it's, it's an exciting question, yet it's, a, it's difficult because I think it leads one to think that there is one thing that can solve everything. And I think I've realized that there is no silver bullet. There is no one thing. You know, my text messaging application isn't going to change the world necessarily, but a host of different things attacking one problem is the solution. That being said, there are a couple of ways to approach it. On the one hand, one thing, if we know what affects health is inequities, right? So societal inequities, the more uh, unequal a society is, the poorer the health of of the country. So that's one thing that can be addressed. I guess getting a little bit closer to to what I do specifically, I think applying technologies where uh, they're needed. One of the examples, that I've had some experience with that I wish I that I wish was more prevalent is something like the system at the VA. Their healthcare system is, is very integrated. And I've seen the efficiencies in that system. So I think something where all healthcare systems could talk to each other. All records were connected in some way. The data that patients send me from their text messages, if those could be connected to their health record. So connection of the data that exists, I think, would be quite powerful as well um, in terms of helping uh, make better decisions for people's care and hopefully a host of other things. So it's a provocative question. I was gonna say,
0: And thank you for really kind of clarifying that because I think it is true. Looking for silver bullets can lead you down a rocky road. So
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, I I think that is one thing. I think for any of us to just to realize that the work we're doing, as important as it might be, is not going to be the be-all and end-all.
0: I wanted to ask you um, what leadership means to you, Mm because I think, similarly, there's no one thing. I think for myself, I think about it, there's no one definition of leadership either. Maybe you could share with us what that means to you.
1: I think that is a difficult question, and I think Um, What I see as as the best type of leadership is really leading by example. This day and age, I think it's particularly salient in that we hear a lot of people talking and and espousing opinions, and a lot of that doesn't get us anywhere. But what we can really get behind is when people have results. So be it in our field, uh, developing interventions and so on, putting out good research, For in my small world, I would say a leader is somebody who leads by example. In the work that they do, in the way they do their work, how they conduct themselves, I tend to see that as probably the the most important compared to what one says necessarily.
0: If you could put yourself, imagine you're in conversation with a professional, a student who's just beginning their journey and their passion and what words of wisdom would you offer them?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think hitting on some of the themes that we've we've talked about a bit are, I do think that the idea of utilizing one's resources is quite important. And within that, thinking about what is it that I have to offer? And then what is it that I need to develop to reach my goals? I think that's, uh, it takes some self-reflection, definitely. So finding out what what it is that Uh, we have in finding out what other resources are around us and uh, really maximizing that as much as possible. Again, I wouldn't be in this area if I also wouldn't highlight the need to innovate and think differently. Whatever that means, I think this day and age in particular, it's not enough to just go along with what's been done and what's being done. We do need to, as As often as the phrase is used, to think outside of the box, right? So I guess the way I see it is to extend, utilizing knowledge that we have, but to really take it further.
0: And that makes me think about what might be a barrier to that kind of thinking sometimes is the idea of risk of failure, Mm -hmm. not really knowing how, or Mm -hmm. working in unfamiliar areas. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on how maybe you personally overcome some of those if you experience them?
1: Well, I think failure, it it all depends on, it all depends on what you do with it. Being a cognitive behavioral therapist, it's not what happens to you, but it's how you perceive and deal with what happens to you. Failure can be dealt with in different ways. You can take failure and have that confirm that you're not good at what you do, or you could take it as a learning experience and learn based on why you failed, so perhaps you can do something differently. So again, I think, being efficient even in in one's own development. So if you fail, taking that as a springboard um, to go forward. In research, if you get negative findings, it shouldn't be the end of the world, but then to learn why did that happen? And oftentimes those are very helpful in in, uh, getting research and interventions to develop further. We're not always gonna get those positive results we want. Um, So I think, constantly learning and maximizing the benefit from whatever experiences that we have is important.
0: And Adrian, this might be another one of those clincher questions, but uh, what gives you hope or inspires you?
1: I think it's, we definitely get caught up in our own uh, worlds oftentimes. The the idea about the, the ivory tower, you know, has some truth to it. We do spend a lot of time in our offices thinking and hopefully generating some sort of knowledge. What I really appreciate is being able to uh, have my ear to the ground and doing some clinical applied research. And what really does tug at me is when I see somebody getting better, when I saw them crying and being uh, feeling sad, feeling like their life was not going the way they wanted to. And then seeing them engage with a lot of these, these ideas about addressing your thought process, changing your activities, uh, what it is that you do, changing the way you interact with others, and seeing how these things are internalized and then uh, people start feeling better. It really gives me hope to see that people can get better. There is a way to, to help improve, you know, in, in the case of my work, improve depression outcomes for people. So if I can help do that for more people, uh, leveraging technology, I think, uh, you know, I'd I'd feel pretty satisfied.
0: Well, I mean, this has just been a really great conversation, and I feel inspired. And and if our listeners are inspired to find out more and learn more about your research, where should they go?
1: The best source is the uh, Berkeley Social Welfare website, which has a my bio there, some uh, pertinent articles, and my contact info. So I'm open to get in contact with anybody who's interested.
0: Great. Thank you, Adrian, so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much, Lisa.